Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you regret pulling the trigger and killing them? You don't. Why not? Because I saved them. That was Julie Scheneker, the Tampa Bay mother and ex-Army intelligence officer who seven years ago fatally shot both of her teenage children. That horrifying story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the bizarre story of a $300,000 Ferrari that was reported stolen in St. Petersburg. Authorities said the suspect duped a hotel valet into giving him the keys. The suspect was charged and the hotel, Marriott International, is being sued by the car owner. And later, I'll discuss the murder case of Julie Scheneker, who on January 27, 2011, fatally shot her 13-year-old son and her 16-year-old daughter. Scheneker was tried in the spring of 2014 and received two life sentences. My special guest for that segment will be the person who interviewed Scheneker after her trial, ABC Action News reporter and weekend anchor Serena Fazan. Coming up, the shocking story of a neighborhood shooting in Pasco County that resulted in a 37-year-old man lying dead in his front yard. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're trying to figure out why one neighbor went to another neighbor's house and took his life. Um, we're trying to put those pieces together, the puzzle, because this puzzle just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why somebody would just go to a neighbor's house and kill him. That was Pasco Sheriff Chris Nako, who was mystified by what took place at a holiday neighborhood last Tuesday in broad daylight. The Tampa Bay Times reported that a neighborhood dispute ended in an execution in the 3500 block of Richboro Drive, about 25 miles north of Clearwater. Detectives said 60-year-old Q Fang Key shot and killed his neighbor, 37-year-old Edward Tudor. The shooter, according to an arrest report, had planned to kill Tudor, as well as an unidentified woman, before taking his own life. Q even had his will notarized before the shooting, according to the sheriff's office. 
Early Tuesday afternoon, violence broke out. We received a call around 1220 this afternoon in reference to a shooting here on Richborough Street. Uh, the victim, who unfortunately succumbed to his wounds, uh, was shot. He was in his front yard uh, before he succumbed. He had actually yelled across the street to a neighbor and had asked that neighbor to call 911, uh, which he did. Our deputies had actually been around the corner. Uh, they got here immediately. Um, they were looking at the house, trying to secure the house. At that time, there was a young lady who was inside the house. She was an adult. She comes outside. She's frantic, of course, because she just heard the shooting. Um, deputies grab her and pull her aside to make sure she is safe. Um, while they're focusing on the house, a neighbor actually comes out. He has two magazines on him, and he acknowledges that he was involved in the shooting. Q was armed with a 22 caliber and a 9mm. He used the 9mm because he thought the rounds could do the most damage to the victim. Q opened Tudor's front door to surprise him. Deputies said Tudor was holding a small dog when the suspect shot him. Tudor managed to exit the house. Detectives said he was kneeling on his front lawn asking the defendant why he was trying to kill him. He continued pleading with the suspect, who answered with more gunfire. The Times story states that Q did not regret the shooting, and he had been planning on rubbing out his neighbor for a while. The Times also reported that the dispute between the two men had been two years in the making. Details of that were not available. A security camera on Q's property captured the full confrontation, and detectives reviewed that footage. The camera was aimed at Tudor's house. Deputies said Tudor was inside his home, studying for a final moments before he was shot. It was believed that Tudor, who was issued a registered nurse's license, was studying to become a physician's assistant. The shooter was jailed without bail. During his media conference, Nako had no answers as to what led to Tuesday's incident. This is one of those situations that, you know, when you think you're going along your, your daily routine, a, a tragedy like this occurs. And so our heart bleeds out to the family, um, the suspects in custody, but we're just trying to figure out, put the pieces together, why somebody would take a, a neighbor's wife, uh, life like this. Coming up, a wacky story about a stolen Ferrari and lawsuit out of St. Petersburg. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Associated Press is reporting that an owner of a $300,000 Ferrari is suing Marriott International, alleging that a valet gave his keys to a man who was trying to impress a woman he had just met. 28-year-old Levi Miles is accused of stealing the car, a 458 Italia Spider, but he is claiming he's innocent of that charge because the valet gave him the keys. The news of the lawsuit broke this week, but the incident occurred July 27th. 
The Ferrari had been parked outside the hotel for more than 12 hours when Miles saw it and told the woman he was with that it was his. He told the valet to give him the keys. Miles went on to tell the unassuming valet that the ticket was in the car and that he'd bring it back to him, but he never did. The valet, according to the Associated Press, watched as Miles and the woman sat inside the car for quite a while. He stopped paying attention after he determined that Miles wasn't coming back to give him a tip. Miles pulled out, and he was driving the car when a police officer pulled him over for driving without headlights. Police stated in the report that the suspect had difficulty driving the luxury sports car. Officers said cocaine was found on the center console, and the woman accompanying him had marijuana in her purse. Both were charged accordingly. Miles originally told police the car was his, but he later said he was just trying to impress the girl he was with, whom he had just met at the historic Vinoy Park Hotel. Miles also was charged with driving with a suspended or revoked license. The owner of the Ferrari is 73-year-old attorney Skip Fowler. He was in town attending a lawyer's convention. He is accusing the hotel and valet of negligence. The Associated Press reported that Fowler had to spend a significant sum of money on car inspections, repairs, and legal fees after he got his Ferrari back. He also said the value of the car had been diminished after the incident. As of today, Miles is still awaiting trial for his charges. Coming up, the story of convicted murderer Julie Scheneker, who seven years ago this week gunned down her teenage children. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. During the fall of 2010, U.S. Army Colonel Parker Scheneker was about to go to Afghanistan. He knew his wife, who had a history of mental illness and who once spent nine months in a mental hospital, was having difficulties. There had been growing conflict between her and the couple's 16-year-old daughter, Calix. He asked his wife whether she needed someone to come by the house and help her with the children. The couple also had a 13-year-old son, Bo. Julie Scheneker shook her head and told her husband... I've got this. On January 27, 2011, Scheneker fatally shot her son while the two were riding to soccer practice. Scheneker turned the vehicle around and parked it in the garage of her Tampa Palms neighborhood home. She went upstairs to her daughter's bedroom and shot her in the back of the head. In both cases, Scheneker fired a second round into the mouths of her children. She later told police she killed her kids because she had grown tired of them talking back to her. The murders made national news. 
Schenecker's case entered the pantheon of those rare homicidal mothers whose cases generated widespread attention and are permanently implanted in U.S. criminal history. She joined the ranks of Susan Smith and Andrea Yates. Smith got life in prison for drowning her children in a lake, but jurors spared her a death sentence. Yates, who drowned her five kids in a bathtub, originally was convicted on murder charges, but was retried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. Schenecker's attorneys used the insanity defense, but they didn't convince jurors that Schenecker was unable to discern between right and wrong when she murdered her children. Jurors took two hours to convict her. The judge sentenced her to life in prison. After her trial, Schenecker granted her one and only interview to Serena Fazan, a reporter with the ABC affiliate WFTS Tampa Bay. Fazan told me she had tried for years to nail down an interview with Schenecker. Julie Schenecker is certainly one that I did want to talk to because I just could not comprehend how someone that was so intelligent could be accused and then, of course, convicted of a crime like this. Schenecker met her husband while she was serving in the Army. She knew how to speak Russian and was a Russian debriefer. She gave up her career to be a stay-at-home mother. She always wanted to have a lot of kids, but her husband only wanted two, and he got a vasectomy after Beau was born. The couple moved to various places, Germany, Hawaii, Pennsylvania, before finally settling in Tampa. At every stop, Schenecker sought counseling. Her psychotic episodes began before the birth of her children. The Tampa Bay Times reported that she had begun taking medications in the early 1990s. Her nine-month stint in a mental institution was in 2001, while Bo was three and Calix was six. More recently, she had sought treatment for alcohol and prescription drug addiction. Her husband forbade her from driving the children because of her substance abuse. At the time of the shooting, Schenecker was being treated for depression and bipolar disorder. Schenecker's downward spiral into violence began five days before the shootings on January 22, 2011. That was a Saturday. Here is Assistant State Attorney Stephen Utagawa telling jurors during his opening statement at Schenecker's trial about that day. On Saturday, January 22nd, she takes the kids to their practices, watches Bo play soccer, and then drops them off at home. She then drives to Oldsmar. Why is she going to Oldsmar? She's going to Oldsmar and she goes to a place called Lock and Load. It's a gun store. What you're going to hear is that she planned to kill her children. Not just kill them, but murder them with a firearm. The clerks at that gun store testified during the trial. They recalled Schenecker being friendly with them and shaking their hands. When they asked her why she wanted to purchase a gun, she said it was for protection. Her neighborhood had some home invasions, and she wanted to be ready to defend herself in case a dangerous prowler entered her home. She was told she had to wait three days to buy a gun. Schenecker told Fazan during her televised interview, had she not had to wait to pick up the gun, her children's fate and hers 
would have been different. I was only going to kill me. The whole plan was to kill me. I was just going to kill me. And if they would have had me, let me buy the gun on Saturday, take the gun home, it would have been over on Saturday. But I had to wait and wait. Instead, Schenecker spent more time alone with her kids. On Tuesday, things took a turn for the worse. Tuesday, her daughter calls her evil. Tuesday, her daughter tells her, you need to dress up for this appointment at school. You need to put on makeup, and that bothers the defendant. On Wednesday, Schenecker cooked Kalix's favorite chicken dinner. On Thursday, Schenecker finally picked up her weapon at Lock and Load. She also purchased hollow point bullets. Udagawa told jurors what happened later that day when Schenecker pulled out of her driveway to take her son to soccer practice. They leave their house. They're driving down the road and she pulls out the gun. And Bo sees the gun. And she indicates she knows that it frightens Bo. And you're, what you're gonna hear is that she fires one shot into the windshield, which again scares Bo Schenecker, the victim. What you're gonna hear is that he basically tells her, you know, put that away, you know, put that away, or I'm gonna punch you. Before she puts it away, she's driving. Bo Schenecker is to her right. She points it at his head. Bam! She shoots him on the left side of his head. Shoots him dead. Schenecker then turned the vehicle around and headed home. She fired one more bullet at her son, striking him in the mouth. She parked the vehicle in the garage. She left Bo in his seat. His seatbelt was still fastened when police found him the next day. And at some point, she goes upstairs where her daughter, Calix, is working on the computer. And what you're going to hear is that she walks up close behind her and Calix says, what are you doing? And the defendant basically responds, just seeing what you're doing. She raises the gun up. Bam! Calix was shot in the back of the head and fell to the floor. Another round was fired into her mouth. Her body was covered with a blanket. Schenecker also covered Bo's body with a blanket. Schenecker kept a journal. She described in detail what she had done. Udagawa read a portion of that diary during his opening statement to jurors. Here is what Schenecker wrote about shooting Bo. I've offed Bo on the way to practice. He saw the gun and told me to put it back in the purse. He had a healthy fright. I accidentally shot the window. The shot him one extra shot through the side of the head. Then when we got home, a shot to his mouth because he became so mouthy, just like Calix. Police were called the following day to Schenecker's home by her mother, who had grown concerned after not hearing from her daughter. Unaware of what they were about to face, officers found her covered in blood and unconscious on her back porch. The blood from her children had stained her white robe. There was also blood on her hands and on her wristwatch. She had downed several pills, including lithium. It appeared as though she had tried to kill herself, but she didn't succeed. She did manage to tell police her kids were dead. They found them 
when they searched the house. Cameras rolled on Scheneker as she was led to the jail. During her perp walk, she was visibly shaking. Authorities later said it was the after-effects of her drug intake, but people who watched were stunned at how she looked. She looked to them like an insane person. The interview she gave to Fazan didn't seem to change the minds of those who held that opinion. Scheneker said she believes her children are in heaven and she wants to join them sooner rather than later. I know they're alive in heaven and I talk to them and I write them and I'm just tell them that I'll be there soon and I'll try to be as good as I can be so I can go to heaven. Schenecker had a death wish. She wanted capital punishment. The state decided not to pursue it, and her defense attorneys wanted her committed, not imprisoned. Prosecutors never say whether cases are easy, at least not before it's heard by a jury. But it was probably hard for Utagawa and his co-counsel not to feel confident heading to trial. They had one piece of evidence that seemed to lock in a conviction. They had Scheneker's diary, and she was very forthcoming with her words. At one point, she wrote, quote, I shot the two mouthy mouths in the mouth after shooting them in the head. That's likely why the news of the killing spread so far. People were shocked to find out that a mother shot her kids for having smart mouths. Here is Scheneker explaining herself to Fazan. They were mouthy. Yeah, they were mouthy. But that's not but why that, you killed them. That's what no, you're saying. No, absolutely. But I don't know why I said that. I don't know why. And I, I must have said that because the news said I said that, right? It was in the paper, so it has to be true. I don't remember saying that. But I think they were. They were. They were kids. They were teenagers. Just like every other kid. And if you say your kids weren't mouthy, then, well, I'll let me meet your kids. The defense seemed to do its damnedest when it put on its insanity defense. Schenecker's attorneys called on mental health experts to testify. The state, of course, countered with its own experts. Defense attorney Jennifer Spradley told jurors that Schenecker a mother and former soldier, lost her battle with a chronic disease, one that took everything from her, including her children. But Scheneker said she was disappointed that her attorneys didn't do more on her behalf. She talked openly about her mental illness during her sit-down with Fazan. Everyone knew I was mentally ill. My parents, why didn't you testify for me? We weren't asked. My friends, why don't you testify for me that I had all these struggles, problems, major problems with people, with things. All my life, I had a lot of problems, but we only know the, the victories I had, how successful I was. That's all they talked about in the trial, right? In May 2014, jurors deliberated for two hours and reached a unanimous decision to convict Scheneker on two counts of first-degree murder. 
The judge sentenced her to two concurrent life sentences. Jurors told the media after the trial that Schenecker's diary entries were what did her in. In the pages, she wrote about a coming massacre, and she promised that the evil would start on Thursday. Her kids were slain on a Thursday. She also wrote about having her and her children's bodies cremated and having their ashes mixed together. One of her entries included plans for a funeral. When jurors read those passages, they realized the defendant had everything planned out in those pages. It was a clear-cut case of premeditated murder. Someone knowingly committing premeditated murder. Those weren't the words of someone who couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong. However, Schenecker did appear to be a sick woman. How sick is probably still being debated. Even Fazan still wrestles with her own feelings about Schenecker. She told me that interview has impacted her like none other. She's handled murder cases before, but this one kept her awake at night for months. Fazan felt as though Schenecker, a government-trained interrogator, was trying to get into her head. She looked directly into my eyes and she said to me, we all have our secrets, don't we, Serena? And she said, take a look at you. You're an anchor at, you know, at an ABC station. You broke this story, you broke that story. And she said, but what are your secrets? And how would you feel if the world knew them? It was, I literally, after that interview, I went, I told my photographer to pull into a gas station and I got sick, physically ill. The interview had aired on television, but the less edited version was posted online and is available for streaming on YouTube. It is presented in five parts. The viewer has the luxury of taking breaks, but Fazan didn't, and the interview mentally exhausted her. It was an assignment she had wanted for years, but she probably second-guessed herself more than once after the interview was over. Never in a million years, never in a million years, thought it would impact me as much as it did. I mean, I, you know, I really pursued that story, of course, but if you look at my bio, there's many stories I pursued. She, yes, she was definitely one of the interviews that I, I, I really wanted. But again, I never, ever, 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 ever thought it would impact me as greatly as it did. I didn't sleep, I told you, for months. I was haunted by it. Fazan did get peace of mind after the interview. Colonel Parker Schenecker, who she never thought she would ever hear from, saw her in public one day and spoke to her. I was at a restaurant recently, I would say like six months ago. Colonel Schenecker came up to me, introduced himself to me, and I had seen him a few times, you know, at because um, he's, uh, he's very, very actively involved in helping kids. He came up to me, he shook my hand, and he said, I just wanted to thank you for putting together, he said at first, I, you know, I was upset that she was being interviewed, but I watched, I finally watched the stories, and I just want to thank you for putting together such a fair and accurate report. And coming from him, that to me, I mean, I cannot even imagine what he has gone through. But that to me brought some peace as well. 
when she talked about her son, Julie Scheneker referred to him as Little Bo. She also spoke glowingly about her daughter, who was a star athlete and student. The interview with Fazan had its bizarre moments, too, like when Scheneker described how she witnessed Calix's spirit leave her body, or when she asked Fazan to hold hands with her while she prayed. She thanked God for bringing Fazan to her so she could tell her story. Part of what troubled Fazan was how much her feelings conflicted. There are still moments when she feels pity for Scheneker, but she also realizes the woman had to drift into a dark, evil place to murder her own children. So she has wrestled with the guilt of having that small sense of pity. While on the air doing a wrap-up of the interview, Fazan stood next to her colleague answering questions. But at one point, she struggled to keep her emotions bottled up. The same thing happened to her when she spoke to me. It was hardest for her to talk about the victims. That is one of the reasons why I could not sleep. Because especially thinking about little Bo, like, I can imagine, you know, like, I, I could see it myself. I have a daughter, but I could see it. I could see my daughter looking at me in the eyes and saying, Mommy, why are you looking at me like that? And then imagine the fear of her pulling out the gun and shooting him. Because mothers and fathers are supposed to protect their kids from everything. So I just thought, and you know, Caleb didn't see her, obviously, because she came in from behind her. But little Bo did. Their eyes locked. Julie told me that. Her eyes locked with her son, and then she still pulled the trigger. He must have been so scared. He must have been so, so, so scared. And I just wonder, like, gosh, I hope I don't get emotional again, but that, like, I question, you know, in his mind, like, like, Mommy, what are you doing? You know? Scheneker is serving her life sentence at the Lowell Correctional Institution in Ocala. It's unlikely she will ever see her husband again. She still loves him. That's what she told me, that she still loves him and she would do anything to be able to see him again. But he completely, after that happened, cut her off. But one of her, her biggest desires is for him, for Colonel Scheneker, to visit her in prison. And he's not going to do that. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the mysterious case of Laurel Rogers, who went missing on February 1st, 2010, from Port Orange. No trace of her has been seen since. You won't want to miss that episode. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. 
Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.